3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boongarong people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past, present, and extend that respect to our other Indigenous Australians who may, in our audience, audience all listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded, and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing today? A bit chilly today, uh, Grace and Claudia. It's a little bit cold coming in. It was it was a bit like, oh, it's fresh. Um, so, you know, good good times though. Mm, yeah, I think the weather was quite not not too entirely cold, but it was a bit shivering. I guess <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a hit reality essay on the drive to Geelong. I had to have the full wipers on, so. That's how it rolls. Oh, yeah, it was raining a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's kind of annoying as well because, like, I had to, like, bring the umbrella early in the morning and I was just like, it's so annoying because, like, it's already so cold and then now there's the rain and I was shivering so much and I'm not feeling that well as well. <laughs> the problem. <laughs> so, ugh. Winter vibes. Yeah, I know, yeah. but it's only May, Gladia. And the good thing is, though, our show will warm, warm you up today. Yeah, so busy show. Grace, uh, do you want to tell us what we've got on? Yeah, so um, first up, uh, we'll be looking at something that I have uh, d- done with uh, an, someone from an international, con- international, I would say, context. Uh, so I spoke with Daniel Bassett, who is the head of Asia-specific desk at the Reporter Without Borders, uh, stands for RSF, about the 2023 World Press Freedom Index with highlights of the fake content industry and Australia's situation with press freedom. And then we'll follow up with uh, Patrick, who has... I think we've got Patrick's piece on the public housing forum. Yes, we do, we do. The Barack Beacon housing forum, which happened last Thursday, big rally, which happens. So, yeah. Yeah, apologies. Basically, uh, Patrick uh, did an interview with Fiona York, who is the host of the 3CR Sure, raised the roof regarding the Barrack Beacon public housing estate in Port Melbourne. And then it is basically also followed up by a piece with Trees presenter Joel Malignaghi, who regarding the Barrack Beacon public housing estate in Port Melbourne and the rally that was held last Thursday. And then finally, as, not finally, right before we go into the final one, uh, we've We'll be looking at uh, Carnegie Fart from Breakfast, who spoke with CAF organizer, uh, which stands for Campaign Against Racism and Fascism organizer, and activist Aisha Jago on fighting the far right's anti-immigration and anti-LGBTQI plus agenda. And finally, uh, bringing some humor to the post-budget conversation, Claudia speaks with performer, clown, and teacher Elizabeth Davy about the importance of fun and her forthcoming community show at the Butterfly Club called the Super Moon Money Program. 
Yeah, so that's our all us. What we're going to be looking at today. Excellent. Uh, well, before we get stuck in, we've got some news headlines. Cricket Australia should consider avoiding 26 January, says Test batsman Usman Khawaja, if it is the wish of Indigenous players after this summer's Gabba Test was scheduled for the public holiday. There was already criticism by Indigenous all-rounder Ashley Gardner, who lamented the decision to schedule the men's Gabba day-night test against West Indies to start on 25th of January. Gardner previously condemned the scheduling of a woman's T20 international against Pakistan on 26 January this year. I said my opinion this year and I told the people that it mattered to for this to happen again but just to the men's side. I guess that's certainly disappointment. Gardner told News Corp. Cricket Australia's scheduling manager, Peter Roach, cited a tight summer schedule and noted the governing body's National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Cricketing Advisory Committee had been consulted and supported about the schedule. And then heading on to um, international context for me, uh, the United States have lifted a gay ban on blood donation Instead of a three-month abstinence period before gay men can give blood, instead, they'll be asked questions about sexual risk of all donors regardless of their sexual orientation. Currently, Australian Red Cross Lifeblood Service still does not allow gay men and bisexual men and trans women who have sex with men to donate blood, but instead give blood plasma. Spokesperson for the Let Us Give blood donation campaign that's part of Just Equal the Australia's advocacy for LGBTQIA plus group is calling on Australia's authorities to do the same. Let us give said that there's no sign that justifies banning countless gay, bisexual, trans and non-binary Australians from donating blood. Let us give has a petition calling to remove unjust discrimination and stigma immediately. To sign the petition, head to change.org and look for Let us give blood, save more lives. And Australia has been given a score of zero by the Global Climate and Health Alliance, a coalition of over 150 health and development organisations working to tackle climate change. In particular, the Alliance promotes the integration of health goals in climate commitments to protect human populations from health-related effects of climate change. A ranking of zero means a country has not scored in any of the 18 indicators used by the Alliance to measure health climate priorities. Several wealthy nations, including Japan and New Zealand, also received scores of zero. Dr Jenny Miller, Executive Director of the Global Climate and Health Alliance, says the results show that virtually none of the countries most culpable for climate warming appear to be clearly focused on protecting the health of their citizens or people around the world when making climate commitments. By contrast, low and middle income countries are leading the way when it comes to inclusion of health goals in their climate com commitments. The country of Burundi in Eastern Africa is the poorest in the world, but ranks the highest on the scorecard for inclusion of health goals in its climate commitments. And that's our headlines for this morning. We're gonna to go to a song now and then we'll be back uh, to hear more. This is Black Fella, White Fella by Warumpi Band.
You're listening to 3CR at 5.5am. This is The Breakfast Show. So we'll be heading into a follow-up on Press Freedom that actually had World Press Freedom Day two weeks ago. But recently there was the 2023 World Press Freedom Index that released and it basically talks about the rank and the situation uh, roughly an analysis of how press freedom is uh how press freedom's situation is around the world and yet yeah, it also includes uh, results and statistics from Australia. So I spoke with Daniel Bastard who's the head of Asia Pacific Desk at the Reporter Without Borders, also stand as RSF, about the about the index and it highlights on the fake content industry which was one of the main issues that came up with as they analysed how press freedom is going to be affected uh, how press freedom is really affected this year and obviously is going to be. 
and also looking at how Australia's situation is with pass freedom. Let's take a listen. Uh, hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm very fine. How are you, Grace? How are you? I'm good, good. So, um, as we go into the latest edition of this 2023 World Press Freedom Index that came out recently, uh, how is the situation generally for countries in the Asia-Pacific region? Um, well, uh, the Asia-Pacific region is one of the most dangerous for journalists. It's one. It's a region where it's uh, very difficult to work as a journalist for mm-hmm. several reasons. Um, one peculiarity of the region is the um, a tendency of several uh, regimes, several countries, several governments to um, enter some uh, space of uh, totalitarianism. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, if we take the very uh, the lowest country in the index, which is North Korea, mm-hmm. uh, well, there is it is clearly a totalitarian state, as um, as uh, people have terrorized this um, this concept in um, in the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no civil space. There is no civil society. There is just one man, one party, one country. Um, and um, and the power is really 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 concentrated around one leader and uh, and um, everything on the public space is just propaganda. Uh, so that's for North Korea, which is really an extreme example. But the problem is that in uh, neighboring China, we have more or less the same um, the same um, configuration. Mm-hmm. Um, under Xi Jinping, you have uh, no debate inside the Chinese Communist Party anymore. Mm-hmm. You have just one man who is um, ruling every inch of of the party of the Communist Party, mm-hmm. and and the party is everywhere in uh, in uh, in civil society in China. It's very different from um, from how China looked like. Before Xi Jinping came to power, mm-hmm. um, I, I personally uh, I, I, I worked as a correspondent in China during six years um, before Xi Jinping came to power, yep. and it was really really different. Like you could buy some newspaper where you could see like two different um, um, directions within the party who would debate inside the the, the press. Mm-hmm. Um, you had many bloggers. Who, of course, would fight censorship on the internet, but would be quite uh, smart enough to um, to uh, to win this fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really it was really a cat and mouse situation. Now, uh, under Xi Jinping, the cat has um, has totally, let's say, swallowed the mouse, the mice, um, uh, and that's something um, that has been in place for, let's say. Um, at least since the beginning of the second mandate of Xi Jinping, which was five years ago, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it has increased dramatically. And you have no, like, um, no public space. Like, everything has to be vetted by the propaganda department of the Communist Party, uh, which was not the case uh, before. Mm-hmm. So that's a big tendency that you can find in Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. 
um, uh, and in many other, um, let's say, hybrid regimes in uh, in the in the Indo-Pacific. Yep. Um, so that's that's the first tendency. Mm, I see. And going into a bit of focus for Australia, so mm-hmm. we we uh, basically what I saw with the results is that uh, Australia went up by at least twelve places, and then. Based mm-hmm. on the results, uh, the you showed the RSF showed a bit of like the indicators respectively towards politics, economics, and as well as security. So, can you explain what did those numbers indicate? What what the index is uh, trying to explain about? Sure. So um, there are uh, yeah, we have five indicators. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically. Um, it has to deal with the political context in which press freedom can thrive or not, mm-hmm. the legal framework, the economic context, um, the social cultural context, and and the security of journalists um, uh, indicator. Um, what has changed for Australia um, in the past year is the change of government. Mm. And it seems that um, it has um, it has had some effects on the level of press freedom, mm. um, because the political context has um, is is uh, is a bit better. Mm-hmm. I think that is what explains the the better score of Australia this year, mm-hmm. um, um, because the former administration um, um, was. Um, not very confident, confident uh, with the, with the press. There was a kind of uh, defiant um, uh, context, which I was fueled by the um, the several attacks against the press. The fact that the ABC headquarters were raided. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the um, uh, there was this case of this uh, journalist from Canberra, uh, Anika Smethurst, whose home was raided by the uh, by the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, mm. um, and this was really re- for for um, um, a so-called um, major democracy, as Australia has ha- likes to portray itself. Um, it's it was really really bad. I mean, it's um, the national security uh, issue was used as a pretext to censor journalists, to intimidate journalists, mm. and uh, and that was really what happened in uh, in 2019, 2018, 2019 um, under the former administration. Mm. And uh, it's true that the Albanese administration has kind of. Um, um, lowered its its grip on the media. Yeah, let's say. Um, and another aspect is um, that should be mentioned uh, about Australia is the very um, high level of concentration of media ownership mm-hmm. with uh, let's say two giant firms who dominate the, the media landscape. Yeah. Um, and what is uh, problematic is that. Um, uh, there are some close ties to uh, between big media companies and political leaders, um, which can create some uh, some culture of secrecy uh, by the administration of um, uh, of intimidations against journalists who don't toe the line of their chief editor mm-hmm. or of their media owner. 
um, and these created some uh, some uh, let's say some uh, negative um, context for for press freedom to thrive. So the fact that the current administration seems to be willing to cut ties with these um, uh, big uh, media companies uh, uh, CEOs, let's say, uh, is is quite encouraging for, for for the development of press freedom in Australia. I see. So we can say that there's kind of like good news, but also a lot of bad news at the same time. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, well, I, 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 my last sentence, my last word was encouraging. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see, definitely. Um, positive. Oh, sorry, could you repeat that again, please? Yeah, let's try to stay positive. Mm, I see. All right. Um, so, and now coming into the highlight of the index, uh, it basically talks about the effects of the fake content industry that's rising at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, what is the main issue here with this? Um, it's a vast question. Uh, there are many main issues, but um, uh, that's something that we have um, started to see with the um, with the um, Web two zero mm-hmm. um, and the development of uh, social networks. Um, we saw the, this um, tendency starting with the Brexit in um, in UK with the, the 2016 elections in the US, mm-hmm. uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, we started to see that uh, people using these new um, uh, news industries, mm. which are Twitter, Facebook, etc., um, can be manipulated uh, through algorithms. Uh, and the information that is um, that is uh, broadcasting or, or given through this social network can be um, can be manipulative, mm. um, and that that was bef- that was uh, the, the the context before uh, the the last two years, and mm. now with uh, the the growing industry of artificial intelligence. We see that not only we can manipulate information, but we can now create um, false information, false uh, images, false mm. videos, um, and of course, um, uh, erroneous uh, documents, uh, text. Let's say. Um, so that's that's the big risk. Mm. Uh, the other, so that's the risk for the let's say for the readers, for the public, for the viewers. Mm. Um, we have to find some ways to make sure that uh, the viewers, the readers, know what is fake or what is fabricated mm. and what is some information that is produced following some journalistic standards. Um, another uh, preoccupation is um, uh, the fact that um, will robots replace journalists? Mm. That's a true question. Many um, I, I mentioned the high level of of uh, concentration in in media ownership in Australia, mm-hmm. um, and this um, for the let's say last decade, this um, ultra concentration led to some um, sacking of people of journalists. Mm. Um, 
And now we know that many big media companies are thinking about replacing their journalists with bots, with news bots. Um, the problem is that for the while, um, artificial intelligence is not very intelligent. <laughs> so we fear that um, it's uh, that um, uh, they will produce some very low-level journalism. Um, and uh, and this leads me to to uh, these two aspects leads leads me to to promote leads us at RSF to promote the idea of um, of some information that is uh, produced uh, according to journalistic standards and they are clear you have to um, to be clear in uh, in um, in the way you present facts you have to double check triple check facts. Um, you have to get uh, the point of views of different people. There are just basic journalistic standards. And and we have a project at RSF, which is called the Journalism Trust Initiative, mm -hmm. um, which is a proposal for, for platforms to um, take into account in their algorithms the way that product the, the information is produced. Um, so the, the, the goal of this project is to have uh, big tech companies um, um, integrate into their algorithms the need to uh, to propose some some um, uh, trustful information, um, so that when you when you go on your on your timeline, you would see uh, you would some like um, trustful information would be promoted over some fabricated contents. So that's what that's how we we're working on on this on this trend to to address this um, this big problem. Mm, I see. So I guess we could come to this point of understanding that the AI is going to be a very dangerous platform and is already possibly a very dangerous platform at the moment for the journalism industry. Um, yes. Well, it's. It's just like um, when we discovered radio, we realized that it was a formidable, formidable way to um, to uh, to inform people. But uh, very soon, you have someone like Orson Welles who created the War of the Worlds, mm -hmm. where he um, it was I think in twenty in nineteen twenty nine. Mm -hmm. It was a long time ago, and already at that time, he proved that uh, masses. Can be manipulated very easily. So um, uh, AI is clearly not an enemy; it's an opportunity. Mm. Um, but it's um, it's uh, it's possibly risky. So um, that's why we call on uh, governments and mostly tech companies to um, to have some clear rules on how to use AI and how not to use it, or to be very clear on the way it is used. Um, mm. uh, not the point is um, is to be honest with the readers, with the public. Um, and that that uh, brings me back to this, um, this idea of sticking to journalistic standards. Mm -hmm. um, if you, um, if you uh, want to do an interview, of, uh, I don't know, Elvis Presley um, through AI, it can be interesting, but you have to say that it's not um, the real Elvis Presley <laughs> doing the <laughs> interview, obviously. Mm. So that they, that's just as simple as that. Mm. I see. 
And so uh, we we were actually running a bit of uh running out of time actually, uh, Daniel. But just one last one last question mm-hmm. for you. So with with Asia Pacific, we can basically see they are also mm-hmm. one of the most dire regions in terms of press freedom for journal uh for yeah. journalists. And so, what does RSF hope to continue advocating for press freedom here? Um, well, as I said, the Asia Pacific region is still one of the most dangerous uh, region for journalists, mm-hmm. um, including some countries like, like Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Philippines, India, mm-hmm. where many journalists are killed every year. Um, so we're we are really advocating for the passing of laws on protection of journalists and fight against the impunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that we have uh, achieved in in Pakistan, for instance. We mm-hmm. have um, partnered with the one, um, not partnered, but we advocated with um, with one government in Sindh province to pass a law on the protection of journalists. And that's something that we have, um, we are advocating for, uh, for for years because we have some expertise on how it was uh, made in, in Latin America, notably, mm-hmm. uh, where there, there are similar problems. So we come up with this expertise and we are trying to advocate with um, with um, states within India, for instance, to, to pass this kind of law. Um, uh, the other... Um, aspect that we are advocating on and that that concerns Australia is some uh, also some legislation to to uh, limitate um, the ultra concentration of media ownership um, because that's really a problem for um, uh, for like Australia. democracy um, where where big companies have some um, some tremendous power over over public opinion and that's very dangerous mm. um, and finally we are advocating for but that's more difficult but for um, civil society in countries like China to um, to be able to to talk uh, and to report about what is happening really inside Chinese society for instance mm, I see all right thank you so much Daniel you're welcome thank you and that was Daniel Bassett, head of the Asia Pacific Desk at Reporters Without Borders (RSF), about speaking about the 2023 World Press Freedom Index, with highlights of the fake content industry and the silly situation with press freedom. If you want to read the entire analysis, head to rsf.org and make sure to select the English language for, uh, for for you to read the report entirely in the language that you. Much with uh, that we all know. Three <laughs> CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enrol for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today 
about how to register for a place. Corey kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. This is 3CR Breakfast, 855am and on digital radio. Now, um, following up my interview with Fiona York, host of 3CR show Raise the Roof regarding the Barack Beacon public housing estate in Port Melbourne, last Thursday, Public Housing Everybody Business, an organisation that helps people trying to find public housing and also supporting the cause of public housing, had a rally uh, regarding the residents' future at the, fo- at the steps of State Parliament, uh, where 3CR presenter Joe Malagi uh, interviewed impacted residents and there were speeches conducted by organiser Joe Toscano, impacted resident Margaret Kelly and Victorian Greens leader Samantha Ratham. So in this pre-record, you will hear from those voices and hear from, the imp- hear from what happened at the rally on last Thursday. Okay, we're at... Uh on the steps of uh, the Victorian Parliament House and we're almost ready for the media conference to begin for the public housing is everybody's business and Margaret Kelly is here underneath the banner and we'll be hearing stories very soon. 3CR Community Radio. Eleven thirty. We always start on time. Now I'd like to introduce my name's uh... not working. Yeah, it's my name's Dr. Joseph Toscano. We're dropping out a bit here. Public housing, every business, and I'd like to you. I'd like to make an acknowledgement to country, to the people of the Kulin Nation, uh, the original not just custodians but owners of this land who've never ceded their sovereign rights to this land. We acknowledge them. Um, This little gathering is here for a number of reasons. And the main reason is to look at public housing. The idea of retaining, repairing, investing in public housing. What we've seen over the last two de- over the last ten years is a concerted effort to privatise public housing and confuse about what is happening. Now if you listen to most of the commentators these days, they'll use terms like social housing community housing, affordable housing, inclusive housing. These are terms created to confuse people. People equate this with public housing. Even our Prime Minister, when he was first elected, was using the term public housing until he was re-educated to use these other terms. These other types of housing are privately owned, privately managed. And what we're seeing is a state government policy to privatise an essential component of everyday life, shelter. 
in Victoria over the last decade we've seen an increase in personal liberties. Legislation to protect people from being racially abused, sexually harassed, exploited at work. But no legislation to ensure that people have the basic necessities of life, like access to the basic necessities like housing, food, security. Now, Margaret Kelly, who I'd like to introduce, has been a resident of the Barrack Beaconsfield estate now for over two and a half decades. And about 18 months ago, she got a notice that the Barrack Beacon estate, which had 89 two and three bedroom family units, was going to be given over to the private sector to develop. And in return, the state government would provide 100 of the 350 housing units to the community social housing sector, which, is, which are privately owned organisations. Now, unfortunately, most people in public housing find themselves obviously in a difficult financial situation. And most people have responsibilities and children have disabilities and they're frightened that if they fight back, they'll be evicted or they won't be relo relocated in another place. Now, public housing is important and Margaret will explain this in a second and I'm gonna shut up in a second for three reasons which people don't seem to understand. A strong public housing sector puts downward pressure on private rentals and the lower end of the private marketplace. When you have no competition in a capitalist society, when there isn't a strong public housing sector, as we've seen in aged care, health care, and many other facets of human life, prices increase and accessibility decreases. So a strong public housing sector will eventually decrease rents and decrease housing prices at the low end of the market. More importantly, and I know this from personal experience, because many of, I've been a doctor for almost 50 years and I look after people with profound physical disabilities after injury. People like you and me going about their business and in an instant their life changes, a fall, a car accident, an industrial accident, a workplace accident. And many of my patients live in public housing. It's spot purchased homes in the 80s and 90s around the suburbs. And what public housing does, it gives you security of tenure. You can live there for the rest of your life unless you're a, you know, you're a troublemaker and you know, you know, upset your neighbours or don't pay your rent. It means your children can go to the same schools. They can have the same friends. They can have an uninterrupted education. They can go to the same sporting clubs. It's that security of tenure, not just the fact that rents are fixed at 25% income, but it's that security of tenure, which is so important, which almost 40% of Australians don't have because they're renting on a year-to-year -year basis, too frightened to complain. 
or they're paying off mortgages, working two jobs. So I would like to introduce Margaret Kelly. She's a wonderful human being. Six weeks ago, she came up here to join us. We've been up here for seven years now with minimal success. And she thought she'd give us a bit of a boost. And she's a wonderful human being. She'll be speaking. And then Samantha from the Greens, who are the only political party in Parliament which has supported the concept of public housing. And it's a joy. I'm not a Greens member, and I never will be. And it's a joy. It is a joy to see Adam Bant and, other, and, and Samantha get up and use the term public housing. So Margaret's going to speak. I'll do my best. So, yes, as Joe said, the reason that I went into public housing was that I wanted security for my to have a home where he could have a pet. He knew... Okay, thank you. Okay. Happy any input. Um, so, unfortunately, that did not immediately happen because they put us into housing that was actually making my son and myself very sick and we had to fight to get out of that. After that, we were randomly moved to Garden City to the Barrack Beacon Estate. I was in shock when I got there, but I found I was at a lovely place. That time it was a cut-off little part of the world. So I've been there for five years because of the historic connection garden city was the first public housing in victoria i never thought that what's happened would happen so on the 30 december 2021 i've been mostly housebound for quite some time so my immediate local surroundings were terribly important to me. My neighbours, um, just the familiarity, the local services that I use. I came home from an appointment and there was a letter from Homes Victoria. It said, you will be required to relocate, but not for some time. And then I read the next page, which said, we will anticipate they will commence in early 2022. So that was actually three weeks from when we got that letter. They started relocating people. Um, and they said that they were demolishing the estate, planning to replace homes with brand new, modern and energy efficient homes. Um, they seem to think modern is like a positive, not really with building and architecture. So the Barrack Beacon Estate is designed with a lot of love and care. There was a lot of input from the Port Melbourne Council at the time. Um, 
we have not been able to get the details of the architect and so forth, but obviously somebody thought very, very hard about how to make not just houses, but a community. Each group of houses surrounded a courtyard, um, so you get to know your neighbours, um, but then you also get to know people in the wider context. I became, after reading the letter, somehow two hours passed and I was sort of came aware, sitting on my bed, still holding the letter. Um, apparently earlier that day, a team of employees from Homes Victoria with security guards, I wonder why they thought they needed that, had door-knocked the estate to bring the glad tidings 12 days before Christmas. Answer to that beyond we're building brand new, modern, energy efficient, sustainable, accessible, and so many adjectives. You can't keep track of them, but that's all Homes Victoria will ever say about what they're doing. Fortunately, we were contacted by people from other estates and the Safe Public Housing Collective who were already had in this process. So Homes Victoria came to us and said it will take two years, we're just going to pop you out and pop you back. Um, so people came to visit us who said, no, we're still waiting four years, five years. Um, and I know on those particular sites, there is still no social housing. There's private townhouses, there's schools, there's no social housing. And it turned out that the social housing they're talking about is not public housing. And that's what people believe they are building public housing. Um, I believe they were building public housing. I read the news reports and thought, oh great, 12,000 more public housing units. But what they're actually doing is privatising public housing. Um, the second was, we live locally, they said we're going to relocate you, but we said where? Because there's a big shortage of public housing in our local area. Um, so what's actually happened is that most people have been put into private rentals. Um, I don't know what's going, some of them have actually been put in very nice homes but it's a bit random. I can't work out the logic of who gets offered what. It's certainly not about need or being deserving. They seem to just, I th basically I think if they think people are go going to be troublesome, they make an effort for them. If you're nice and pleasant and cooperative, they just throw you whatever is available. Um, so it really seemed hopeless for a while. Um, like, as I said, I don't get out much. Um, it was hard to know what to do. But then eventually there was, we collected a loose group of people, tenants who were standing up to the process, people who supported us. Um, and then office came along who are a not-for-profit architecture firm and told us about the work they had done at Ascot Vale 
um, to design uh, renovations rather than demolitions and they worked with us, they did a feasibility study, they interviewed the, the residents, they did all the things that Homes Victoria had not done and they designed a renovation of the existing buildings which are just beautiful and deserve to stand on their own and also the in the the infield to produce what Homes Victoria refers to as the yield, which is apparently the number of houses. I always thought it referred to cows, but um, yeah, they want. So the office plan, without removing tenants, without any of the damage without pulling buildings down achieves everything the state government says they want to achieve but for 88 million dollars less and they actually as part of the plan they showed how you could stage it so tenants did not need to be relocated off the estate you'd think homes victoria would be very excited about that but no they have just ignored it um, so things are advancing on the estate. I think probably there are seven households out of 89 left. They're writing cryptic messages all over the building. They're pulling out the plumbing for the price of the copper pipes. Um, it's, it's happening and I think they want to start what they are now calling enabling works. They've removed all references to demolition. Thank you, Margaret. Now, uh, I'd, I'd like uh, Samantha Ratnam to come on and uh, say a few words. And then we have a surprise guest. I'm even surprised. We have somebody from the S. Estate, which has been privatised as and Jess has come here to tell us what it's really like and the difference between public housing and social housing. So, is the future. There you go. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank, firstly, thank you so much, Margaret, for your unbreakable courage and conviction. Stand up on behalf all the residents of Barrack Beacon Estate and all public housing estates across Victoria to stop the destruction of public housing we're seeing in front of our eyes. So thank you so much, Margaret. We're all with you. I'd like to acknowledge we're meeting on Wurundjeri land and pay my deep respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that sovereignty over this land has never been ceded. Everyone in Victoria should have access to a safe, and secure and affordable place to call home. But that's not the reality right now in Victoria. In fact, we have never been further away from that reality. Margaret Kelly's just gone into 50 Lonsdale Street with a small delegation.
We've got to make a bit of noise in the windows because that gets a bit of a reaction from uh, the security. So apparently Margaret's going to organise or been allowed to organise an appointment with the minister at some time because apparently the minister is not in today. So we'll see where that eventuates and, event and eventually we'll see whether the, uh, the glass breaks. It's a very simple stalemate. All they've got to do is send somebody and down from, yeah, from, from the minister's office to organise an appointment. It's a very simple equation. So we may be here for a long ball. <laughs> you may be here at midnight. And you are on 3CR. That was a pre-recorded piece by 3CR presenter Joe Malagi and edited by myself, Patrick Morrow, regarding the Barack Beacon public housing estate in Port Melbourne, the rally that was held last Thursday. Uh, 3CR has received a government statement um, regarding the current situation. That statement will be put on the website this afternoon. Um, an update on Margaret Kelly's future is, is uncertain, but she's going to have a meeting with the Minister Colin Brooks uh, in the coming weeks and we'll keep you updated throughout that in our show and also uh, Joe Toscano's show uh, Radical Australia and also through Talk Back with Attitude. In Rasavin Manasili Isai Nyani Ilea Rajavin Isai Kondatam Celebrating the wondrous music of Maestro Ilea Raja on 3CR every Friday 8 to 9pm Sarik 26th of May So we there was a, we had a bit of a discussion regarding public housing just now. And in relation to public housing, there has also been quite a bit of a discussion regarding uh, people staying in Australia. Uh, there's also been a lot of anti-immigration stance and views. So recently, far-right groups have been more vocal about their racist views, like their anti-immigration stance, and using their threats and intimidation to boycott LGBTQI plus events. So Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, CAF, have been campaigning against these groups in Victoria. Kanagi Faf from T Breakfast spoke to organiser of CAF and activist Aisha Jago on the rally last weekend where they, uh, where they were supporting immigrations and to stop Nazis who were at the, 
at uh, the protests as, um, in in front of Victoria and State Parliament last weekend. So let's take a listen. So let's um, start by just talking a bit about the rally last weekend. How was it? Um, tell us how it was organised and what happened. Yeah, so like the rally, I think, was really, like, it was really great. So what we saw was, like, unfortunately, um, the National Socialist Network called a demonstration against immigration um, at Parliament Steps on Saturday morning. So this was... Um, in response, I believe, um, and they said to the budget reply um, from last week where the Liberal Party and Peter Dutton kind of attributed um, the housing crisis to increased immigration and said that we need to hold, stop immigration, we need a smaller Australia um, if we want to kind of aid the housing crisis. So the National Socialist Network took up this line and they organised the demonstration. So the details of that and the leaflet for which was leaked about a day before it took place. But pretty quickly, like, our group um, and a bunch of people on the left saw this um, and decided to mobilise uh, in opposition to stop them from taking Parliament, but also to outnumber them um, to demonstrate that it's not a majority opinion um, that people think that we need to, like, stop immigration or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, what's the sort of relationship between the racism we see from the government, uh, you know, at, like you mentioned about the budget, um, and particularly from that party and these far-right movements? Yeah, like, I think a lot of people, are like, it's generally assumed, like, the far-right just kind of exists in this vacuum. There's a bunch of crazy to take up these really, like, wild talking points or something. But I think that's, like, incorrect. Like, they... You know, they don't just get their politics from nowhere. They're actually quite um, on the extreme of, I think, like the mainstream. The things they take up are regurgitated from the right-wing positions a lot of the time of, you know, the centre-right. Um, so, the you know, the Liberal Party, when they take up positions like this, when they go on an anti-immigration sort of like tirade or even like in recent years when they've, you know, Spoken like use law and order campaigns to sort of build um, their party, or as part of election campaigns. Um, these talking points have also been taken up by the far right and the extreme right and the hard right, all to try to build their projects as well to take up the similar light that immigration is a problem, that we need to be that race is the issues in society, that that's the things we need to be mobilising around. That's what causes problems. So I think that like. These sort of positions taken up by the right, yeah, like aren't just like, you know, ones that come out of nowhere. They generally just actually reflect um, what is sort of happening. Some of the left and right debates that are happening right now in mainstream politics. And you can see, I mean, in the last few years, like it's not just the Liberal Party (laughs) that's awful on questions of immigration and refugees. Like Labor has also been complicit and active in locking up refugees who um, come here by boat refusing Tamil refugees, visas. I think it reflects a much like stronger kind of current that's actually happening in politics at the moment. Absolutely. I feel like um, the anti-immigration rhetoric is across the board, mm. um, you know, with different parties here and, and as well as in, in the US. And I feel like a lot of these um, movements 
kind of mimic what's going on in the US where there's a bit more of a breeding ground for far right movements to kind of thrive a bit more? Yeah, definitely. Like I think a lot of the you can see some of their talking points have come from it. And even just yesterday, um I believe it was yesterday or two days ago now, there was a really horrific display that happened in, in Dublin in Ireland where like a refugee encampment, a homeless encampment was rioted against by the far right, was burned down. Um and yeah, like activists there reported kind of similar things that the people on the far right sort of side of this, the people who instigated this demonstration against immigration, were using those points about, you know, you guys are all Antifa, you guys are all paid NGOs working for the government or something. Um, all these talking points that come from the United States and their far right. Um, so I think it's been like pretty influential, but I think we can't um, like also discount, yeah, like the impact Australia has had, like how... Australian border policies inspired the likes of Donald Trump is being implemented now in the UK with their kind of resettlement plan um, for Rwanda, just like we have our offshore detention facilities. So, um, it's pretty horrific. Yeah, I think that in a way as well, it's important to note that Australia kind of um, flies under the radar a little bit globally. Um, people always look to the US and while, yeah, there's definitely links, I feel like the rest of the world isn't quite, hasn't quite cottoned on to how draconian Australian immigration policies have always been historically. You know, um, like right-wing governments all over the world have, have realised that. Um, but yeah, it's not something that's like as commonly yeah. <laughs> spoken about anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I feel like it's just an important thing to sort of note because I feel like there's always talk about the links to the US, which definitely exist. But, you know, we have our own um, brand of racism happening here and it's always been here. So that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as you said before, the cost of living is now being blamed on immigration, um, which is, again, it's an age old tactic. And I feel like... Mm. Um, it's almost like a dog whistle from the government or like the opposition or whoever really, um, where they kind of have these veiled racist comments and then, you know, the far right hears what they're saying and then is out in the streets with much more explicit versions of that same thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's what they said. Like, a lot of the reporting on it, um, like, I haven't seen any reporting that's actually attributed... Um, that the reason they have had this demonstration is, you know, because of this nod from um, the centre-right is because of the sort of budget reply making this explicit. They kind of said that Peter Dutton pointed this out, that it's immigration that's leading to housing crisis, and that's why they had their demonstration. But um, I suppose, yeah, it's a lot easier to kind of imagine that the far right just gets their ideas from elsewhere, that it's not a product of actually, like, live political debates that are happening right in front of us. Exactly, and it's a you know really old tactic to deflect blame from the people who are actually to blame. Yeah, definitely. Like it's a way to just sort you know like divide us um, rather than you know seeing when you see like we're in this significant yeah cost of living crisis, housing crisis, to try to get ordinary people to blame each other um, rather than point the finger at the government who are the ones that are actually you know putting three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars into nuclear submarines and having a really pathetic <laughs> package that barely alleviates um, the cost of living crisis for even the people struggling the most, let alone most working-class Australians. Exactly. It's a really harmful rhetoric, um, but it's. I just feel like it's so 
been done that I hope people are cottoning on to the fact that it's, um, yeah, it's a deflection tactic and always has been. Yeah, um, and I mean, the demonstration, like, we significantly outnumbered them, you know, like, the Nazis were moved off by the time their rally was supposed to start. So hundreds of people who came out on Saturday um, to, to say what you said, to say that this is abhorrent, what the Nazis are calling for, what the centre-right in Australia is calling for as well, and that um, we need to stand up and fight back. Definitely, and that's so important to do at the moment. I feel like um, there's been a real emboldening of the far right, you know, because of what we've been talking about. So um, opposing them in any which way is super important. Um, another thing that they've been sort of trying to campaign against is LGBTQI plus events, um, particularly mm. drag story time happening at libraries for kids. Can you tell us what's been happening with this and why, you know, they've been getting cancelled across Melbourne? Yeah, like, well, race is definitely something that, like, the far right, like, historically, like, mobilised around. It is still an issue they do. Um, I think, like, yeah, LGBT issues... Um, and at the moment, like, drag story time, which is, yeah, definitely LGBT adjacent, is being significantly attacked um, by the far right and by Nazis just all over the country. So it's another thing that um, I think sort of began in the United States. Um, but it's become a real touchstone issue. So just um, yesterday it was announced that the Elson Library drag story time that was happening tomorrow on Idaho Day was being moved online due to threats and stuff. And... Just a couple of weeks ago, we were organising a demonstration to defend um, the Oakley Library Drag Story Time event that was planned for this Friday. So, unfortunately, you know, like the far right have been um, organising around this, trying to sort of ramp up this like anti-LGBT rhetoric. Same like old arguments they've used about groomers, um, about people specifically around children, um, mm. that these events aren't appropriate for children, that anything that sort of presents, um, like, talks about gender-inclusive or, um, like, different sexualities or whatever, that this is somehow dangerous. So I think that these, like, gender and the nuclear family, sexism, all these things have also been just historical organising points for the far right, and the drag story times have been kind of like a real um, sticking point for them. So there's been about... I mean, the person, um, the drag performer that was supposed to perform at Alfam, and we'll be doing some online tomorrow, like, they've had five events cancelled for that day due to councils bowing down to the pressure from the right, um, which is a really, like, awful, awful trend, I believe, that these councils are just, like, <laughs> listening to the far right, cancelling LGBT events, giving them wins, um, and sending a message that, like, basically LGBT events in Melbourne can barely be held um, without the councils and those um, who, like, help organise it or authorise them, um, without them just cancelling them as soon as the far right put a tiny bit of pressure on. Yeah, it doesn't sound, um, you know, promising for the cause in any way, and I think it's really important, again, to you know, make make sure that people are, the community is visibly opposing this and fighting mm. against it, you know, um, it's the same thing again, really. It's like a, uh, goes against, it's it's basically just a lie that they're using to deflect from the reality of what, what things are. So um, mm. very important to, to stand your ground and refuse to cancel things like drag story time, which are just nothing but, you know, a nice event for young kids. Um, 
library workers at Elsim Library uh, have been standing their ground and refusing to fully yeah. cancel Drag Storytime, which is great. Um, how can listeners support this event and help support council and library staff, you know, even in the future from from cancelling these events? Yeah, like what you mentioned about library workers being quite staunch um, at Elsim Library about this. This is pretty common amongst library workers across Melbourne at the moment, so I think it's important to support them as well. So um, the demonstration that we called, like, the Australian Services Union, who covers, like, council library workers, had endorsed that, and they've indicated that, yeah, like, they're, you know, angry and rightfully so that library workers are being threatened by um, the far right in this way. They have a right to put on LGBT events. So I think supporting um, and talking to your librarians about this, but also, yeah, mobilising in demonstrations whenever this happens. So coming out in support of these events with the far right threaten them, um, you can do that with the campaign against racism and fascism where we'll be keeping a close eye on these things and mobilising um, to defend these sorts of drag story time events and other LGBT events that are threatened by the right, which now we're approaching um, Pride Month. Mm. So, yeah, just like keep a lookout. And I think we just need a, like, the best way is to demonstrate is to actually come out in numbers to show that the far right are quite minuscule compared to what majority opinion is on this. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Um, Asia, that's all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us and talking us through this very important issue. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Kanagi Fat from Breakfast, who spoke to CAF organiser and activist Aisha Jago about fighting the far right's anti-immigration and anti-LGBTQI plus agenda. Despite the ongoing threat, library workers have been standing their ground on keeping drag story time, uh, which was the event mentioned just now, which is going to be happening at Eltham Library today at 12pm. There have been discussions to move it online, but it's going to be still happening at Eltham Library and so you can go there. Uh, you can support Direct Storytime by emailing solidarity messages to eltyprl at yprl.vic.gov.au. And you can follow CAF on Instagram at calf.melbourne to get involved in any future anti-fascist actions that they've been organising around NARM. And also catch breakfast every Monday to Friday from 7am to 8.30am. Now we're heading into a song. This is called Palestine by Miss Tahi.
and that was Palestine by Miss Tahi. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and uh, I'm here now with uh, Elizabeth Davey, an award-winning performer, clown and teacher based in Melbourne. Through training as a clown, Elizabeth rediscovered the pure embodied joy of playing and being silly as an adult. She runs regular fun and game sessions in her local neighbourhood and is performing a solo comedy show at the Butterfly Club next week called The Superwoman Money Program. Elizabeth is now in the studio here at 3CR to chat with us. Welcome to breakfast. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself just to start us off? Uh, Well, I started stand-up 10 years ago. And then through stand-up, I discovered clowning, as you mentioned. I'm a clown. Um, And it was incredible for me. Like, it was uh, rediscovering the ability to just play, like, be a child again and access that child state, which is what I love about clowning and that sort of pure essence of uh, comedy in clown. Um, And so that's why I started Play in the Park, because I, uh, throughout lockdown, a friend and I developed her show, um, which was called Animal in the Office, um, she's called Sarah Nagorka, a good friend of mine. And we were playing around in the park for 2020, 2021, and people would come up and say, what are you doing? And want to join in. And I was like, oh, I think I really need this in my life. I love being outside and, and playing and being silly. And I feel like other people probably need that too. So what's the response been to the play in the park? Uh, it's been amazing. It's so Uh, It's really, really amazing to have people turn up. They have no idea who I am. I could be anyone. Like they've just seen a post in like a Good Karma group or heard about it. And um, they'll turn up and and give it a red hot go. And, you know, we're running around being silly um, in public, (laughs) like playing kids games like Crocodile Can I Cross the River and What's a Time Mr. Wolf and things like that. Um, But it's just amazing. Like at the end of it, you just feel incredible. You feel so alive. Um, it's the best way to exercise, I have to say, because you end up running around quite a lot. Um, but yeah, there's just something so life-giving about it. And it's been really beautiful to share that with people, particularly people who, um, aren't like myself and all my clown friends, like we know the fun of these things. We know how great it feels. Um, but there isn't much of an outlet for other people to do that. Like if you're not a performer you wouldn't necessarily go and do like a week-long clown workshop or something um so having that chance to like yeah just re-access that childhood silliness is seems to really resonate with people do you get a response from children in the park do they kind of look and think that's unusual yeah what are they doing doing? our games yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) um we've had some like dogs definitely want to join in (laughs) um we have had some kids as well but it seems to be like, yeah, you'll often get people will sort of like, they'll see what we're doing and they'll be like, ah, and sort of smile and just kind of, you know, it seems to just spread that sort of like cheerful. Contagious. Contagious. Yeah, I think fun is contagious. So how do you become a clown? Like, how do you decide to become a clown? I know, right. Um, I want to say it first, because I think people have a lot of misconceptions about clowns. They think like, you know, It or Ronald McDonald, (laughs) like the really famous ones. Um, So the kind of clowning I do is like a sort of physical performance and it like physical theatre based performance. And it's um, trying to access what's uniquely funny about you, something really authentic and pure about you that's funny. Um, through the body. So uh, my clown teacher is called Giovanni Fassetti. He's an Italian teacher. um, And he talks about finding the story that your body wants to tell. 
he said. By the time you get to the age 25, you've got a whole backpack full of unlived feelings. <laughs> and so you're finding a way to express those uh, through play and through story. Uh, so, yeah, I studied with him and I also studied with a teacher, Philippe Gaulier in France. Um, it was initially my midlife crisis plan. I decided I was going to go to clown school if everything went south in my life. And then it did. So I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know if I can swear. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I, went, I went there and I've never looked back. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. It sounds a little bit like a psychological journey as well, though, tapping Definitely. into unlived experience or lived experiences that might be both, yeah, suppressed inside and then coming out through bodily performance. Exactly, exactly. And it's something, the clown is very naive and joyful. So it is like, I think it's very similar to your inner child, mm. if you make that sound. Like, so it's the things, often the things about yourself that you don't express a lot will be really strong in your clown. Mm. So are we allowed to ask what sorts of things come out in your clown persona? Of course, yeah. So I am... I personally am often quite an anxious person. Like I worry about things. You'll find that with a lot of stand-ups. They're like often anxious or, you know. Um, and my clown is never worried. <laughs> it's the most freeing thing to be. She has absolutely no worries at all. Often I think clowns are just too stupid to be worried. <laughs> um, and so it just, it's like being, um, I don't know, immortal. Like for that hour that you're on stage. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Wow, maybe clowning's the new feel-good drug. <laughs> oh, I think so. Like, and it's, you know, as I say about playing the park, like, it's free. Like, the, you can just turn up with your friends and, like, play those games. There's no cost. That's one of the things I wanted it to be accessible. So it is just, like, we just are there once a fortnight and just turn up if you want. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, we'll come to where and, and yeah, when and totally. how that you can join in on that. But uh, now can you tell us about your new show opening next week at the Butterfly Club in Melbourne, the Superwoman Money Program? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is actually a show I initially wrote a few years ago and I'm bringing it back because it's sadly only more relevant now. <laughs> um, so Superwoman Money Program is a show about the gender super gap. Um, as a comedian, it was a professional challenge to me to try and make that funny. <laughs> um, I got the idea from my super company, actually, at the time. I've since moved super company. But um, they sent me an email about the gender super gap because they were worried about me. And um, that included a list of 300 handy tips for me to save money for my retirement as a woman, you know. And there were tips like reusing my tea bags. <laughs> and um, buying cheaper makeup, but my absolute favourite was avoiding divorce. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so... How did you feel when you received that? It sounds really patronising. Oh, my God, it was so patronising. Um, and it was actually the program that they were developing was actually called the Superwoman Money Program, and I was like, I'm going to call my show that. You can't copyright a title. <laughs> um, but I, I was just so angry about it, and I, like, stewed on it for a while, and I was trying to think about how I could sort of play that emotion like that's one of the things that I guess clowning and comedy and performance gives you is is comedy particularly you can take any kind of tragedy and you add some time and then you've got material um but I was like how can I do something useful with this like rage and uh, you know anger I feel and um so over time I developed this show so it was about I used that as a starting point and I created a character and then I wove in um, parts of my own life and my own story throughout that to try and bring attention to the 
issue, I think, but also explore the complexity of it because it's not just about, oh, I'm buying too much expensive makeup. That's why I'm, you know, going to be homeless when I retire because women over 45 are the fastest growing homeless demographic um, in Australia. So it's it's really a systemic issue, but it's very easy. Um, it's much easier for a company to be like, oh, maybe you should just buy less coffees <laughs> than it is to be like, oh, wow, we should probably try and actually pull apart and address this huge issue that's... At a structural level. <laughs> yeah, at a structural level. Um, it's similar, I think, sometimes to the environmental thing where it's like, oh, you should, um, yeah, use your keep cup. But it's like, actually, there's all these corporations that are creating huge amounts of pollution. So it's much easier to address it on an individual level or to try and blame the individual. Um, but the policy, like the, the sort of modelling and the research shows that you there's not that much you can do. Like, obviously, as an individual, like, definitely like know what your super balance is like consolidate your super like think about it those are the things you can do but like women being the primary carers for children is probably not going to change just with you and it's not necessarily something you can change and that's the biggest driver of the gender pay gap I mm. mean sorry the gender super gap and years that you're not mm. in the workforce or yep. years that you yep. are in you know part-time or less than you yeah, know absolutely. maximum hours and and the the different roles that you might take to accommodate your caring totally yeah role yeah all those things are yeah not something that the individual can conquer yeah exactly and there's things like um like systemically there are thing a thing called pink collar jobs which is a way of describing like women dominated industries and things like childcare and it's like that is a very undervalued industry same with healthcare and um and there's also the gender pay gap, which is still 13.3% um, at the moment nationally. So it went up over COVID and has thankfully come back down. <laughs> but um, uh, that inspired me to offer a gender pay gap discount to my show. So if you use the code gender pay gap, all, all one word together, um, you yeah, women can access a gender pay gap discount. And have any of the... Uh people from your previous super fun come and see they have the not show. have they been invited <laughs> i have not yes i did really? um but I, I i it actually was at one point it was picked up in the paper and so that was removed the tips were removed from the website <laughs> after that um and so the program has since been renamed so you yeah. uh have had impact I guess so, yeah, in my own small way, yeah, one broke comedian with <laughs> that sounds like um, quite a big impact for a uh, corporate organisation to actually change their website and the letter that goes yeah. out to thousands of women. Yeah, I guess I guess it is. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, yeah, just, you know, trying my best. <laughs> so how can yeah. people buy a ticket to come along and see your show next week? Uh, yep, so if you'd like to come along, uh, it's at the Butterfly Club Melbourne, which is on Carson Place in the middle of the city, but it's down an alleyway. So, you know, make sure you Google it <laughs> before you get there. Uh, and so you can buy tickets from the Butterfly Club's website, so butterflyclub.com. And the name of the yeah. show again? Uh, is Superwoman Money Program. Fantastic. Yeah. And the Play in the Park sessions, can you tell listeners how they can find out when they are and where they are? Yeah, absolutely. So we're um, at the moment we're in Jones Park in Brunswick East. It is obviously weather dependent, which is a bit trickier through winter. Um, I have an event on my Facebook, um, Elizabeth Davy Comedian, I think at Elizabeth Davy Comedian, um, or my website, elizabethdavy.com. I have updated with all the dates and the locations and everything. Um, and you can get in touch with me there if you have any questions or you want to come along or... Yeah, anything really. And I believe you've got a session this weekend. Yes, we do actually on Sunday at 2pm. 
Perfect. Yeah. So anyone out there that wants a bit of fun and lighten up the world, I thought this was a, a wonderful piece to present today after we had all our budget discussions last week. Oh, God, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Why not invite a clown yeah. onto the show? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Send in the clowns. Send in the clowns post-budget. <laughs> well, thanks yeah. so much for joining us. And good luck for the show. And I'd urge listeners to check that out and oh, get along. Thank you so much for having and me. And sounds like there's a bit of laughter and a little bit of earnest seriousness there as yeah. well, perhaps. Just a yeah. little bit. Yeah. That was performer Elizabeth Davy talking to us about life as a clown, having fun, and her upcoming solo show, The Superwoman Money Program, opening at the Butterfly Club on Monday night. And as Elizabeth said, you can get tickets via the Butterfly Club's website. And I think that's uh, the end of our show now. Very interesting show today. Such such a good note to end on talking about your show, Elizabeth. Um, she's actually still here in the studio with us, so yeah. Um, it was just just really nice, and I hope we can. I hope we all can go and watch your show. Very interesting show today. Um, we talk a lot about public housing and then the, LG, the anti-immigration and anti-LGBTQIA plus agenda that was being showed a lot. So very interesting and. Um, Claudia, do you have anything else you want to add? No, I just say to everyone, have a lovely Wednesday and thank you for joining us and thank you to our lovely guest Elizabeth here and have a lovely week, everyone. We will see you next Wednesday. You're listening to 855 AM. Oh, who's that from? A quick look won't hurt. What time... Are you picking up, Kate? Oh, damn it. Saw you on your phone. Licence, please. Pick up your phone while you're driving and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught... 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.